0: I don't know what most white
1: people in this country feel. I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen.
2: This is part two of George Floyd. If you did not listen to part one, I would suggest going back and listening to that episode. We released it two weeks ago. Check it out. It'll give you a lot of context for what we're talking about today. And so yeah, take it away, Garen. What are we going to talk about? So
0: if I were to summarize the last episode, it'd be with lyrics that Floyd wrote to a rap song. He said, loaded, loaded with potential, but I'm still going wrong. And we talked last time about how he had so much potential and yet life kept leading him down this struggle almost like the system was designed to lead him there. And that's where we pick up this week. Floyd, in that place, fought continually to try to get his life back together. He struggled with drug addiction. And this is something maybe just to throw out real quick. A lot of white people have access to doctors and medicine to help with anxiety and depression and claustrophobia and the very conditions that George Floyd struggled with. And we can get our prescriptions and we can go and get drugs that are legal and we can afford and can help us with those ailments. But for a lot of people who are in the black community who don't have access to cars, much less to appointments with doctors and prescription drugs, there is a a tendency to self-medicate. And that self-medication is through drugs that are illegal and have been criminalized. And then the system, rather than offering Floyd help treating his anxiety and depression and claustrophobia, the system criminalized him for, and turning to drugs is not good. It's a trap. Drugs are addictive. They're problematic. They cause harm. They divide relationships and break relationships and trust. But Floyd was pursuing those drugs because he was trying to survive and was trying to make a way. And I just wish that we lived in a system that helped him. Rather than just criminalizing him for trying to survive.
1: But if Floyd was, if he were white, the whole picture that was being painted would be different and it would be one of empathy Mm -hmm. and understanding because white drug addiction is a mental illness and black drug addiction is criminalization. And what do you expect a people to do? a person to do when drugs have been flooded into their communities and are more accessible than healthy food.
2: Mm -hmm. Hmm.
0: Oh man, that is a sharp quote, Katina.
1: So at one point he,
0: in his pursuit of getting off of drugs, he tried and a a number of times succeeded to get off drugs for stints of his life. And he got a job at a warehouse and his first paycheck went towards a car, but the car would later land him actually in more, more serious trouble. In 2009, he was a driver for some drug dealer uh, who were, I wouldn't say friends, but they were people that he knew and kind of worked with. And they had had some of their drugs stolen. And so they needed to go and get these drug backs, drugs back. They kind of commissioned George to be their driver since he had a car. And tragically, they went to the wrong house. I mean, it's kind of a tragic situation either way, but it's made worse by the fact that they went to the wrong house. And so these drug dealers go in, break into this home, and Floyd is sitting there in the car, and another neighbor got his license plate from the car. And so he was later arrested and then misidentified as the person who had gone in, as a drug dealer who had gone in and had brandished a weapon. The woman who had the weapon pulled on her originally said that she thought that the person who pulled the weapon was 5'6", in her initial interview, which Floyd, actually I don't remember his height, but it was way more than 5'6". I mean, he was like 6'6", or something like that. And she did not identify him with any degree of confidence. And I think the biographers tracked down other people who corroborated that George Floyd was not the one who went into the house. Yet prosecutors threatened George with a, sen- a sentence of forty years if he took the case to trial and tried to defend that he was not the one who went in.
1: George Floyd was six four.
0: Yeah, so six four. The woman originally said the person was five six. That is very different. So he ultimately accepted a plea deal. Again, I mean, this is like the kind of third one that we talked about—a crime that he didn't commit. He accepted a plea deal for five years. And he didn't commit the crime. He was involved. He was the driver, but he did not commit the crime that he was sentenced for. So Floyd was sent to the Bartlett State Jail. And we kind of teased this out earlier where we wanted to talk about the corruption in the criminal justice system and private prisons and prison for profit. The Bartlett State Jail was set on the grounds of a former slave plantation, the former Ramsey Slave Plantation. The jail was formed in 1967 and conscripted 1,500 mostly black prisoners to pick cotton from dawn to dusk without pay under the watchful supervision of mostly white prison staff who watched on horseback. I mean, being in that prison or watching this picking of cotton, I mean, it would have felt like you had gone back in time 100 years. Prisoners who were favored by the staff could work their way up and earn the right to become unpaid houseboys. That's what they called them. In the big house, which is what they called it, that was occupied by the warden, Hito. Hito would eventually go on to found America's largest for-profit prison system. Kind of on that note, talking about criminal justice and just racial elements of criminal justice in America, let's also talk about Derek Chauvin and give some background on him we're not going to give his full biography but we do want to talk about some of the complaints that were filed against him for using the same neck restraints that he ultimately would use against george floyd to take his life that was not the first time that chauvin had used those restraints and there were numerous other complaints against him and those are an important part of the story because just wanting to show (laughs) he was part of a system that failed. And he was, it wasn't just a single bad apple, bad actor, but he was part of a failed system. So to that end, on September 9th, 2010, two Minneapolis police officers confronted a 28-year-old black man named Cornelius Daryl Smith who had a mental illness. And these guys weren't Floyd. These were two other officers. One of the officers applied pressure to his neck for about five minutes, killing him. The officers were cleared of wrongdoing and the city settled a lawsuit with Smith's family for three million dollars with the agreement to retrain officers on how and when to apply that choking technique. That training was designed to last for 20 minutes and it showed officers how to apply this neck restraint in a way that wasn't going to kill suspects. But in this tragic irony, that training is essentially where... Derek Chauvin got the idea for the restraint because it was immediately after that training which this poor family who had lost their son, they mandated it as part of the settlement agreement hoping that training would lead to less use of violence and yet it backfired here and kind of spurred Derek Chauvin towards the use of this restraint which he hadn't previously been using. So he, trended, he attended that training and then it was just 18 days after that training that he had his first known use of the neck restraint. And it was used against a man who was in his 60s. So going through some complaints against Chauvin, specifically involving this restraint or brutality, in September 4th, 2017, Chauvin and his partner, his police partner, were called to the home of an African-American family because the mother reported that her 14-year-old son, John Pope, was unruly and had grabbed her when she was trying to unplug his phone. So she asked officers to go in and kind of scare him straight, Uh, was the idea. But then Chauvin went into the room and just began to brutalize him, hitting him in the head with his flashlight until the kid's ear bled, then pinned him to the floor with his knee on the boy's neck until 17 minutes passed as the mother begged repeatedly for Chauvin to stop and the boy fell unconscious. The mother filed a complaint that resulted in no disciplinary action. On March 12, 2019, Chauvin arrested a man who was mentally unwell and who had asked the officers for a ride. So he kind of approached them asking for a ride. Chauvin threw the man on the ground and forced his face into a puddle. When the man lifted his face in order to breathe, the officers put a bag over his head and pushed it back into the puddle until paramedics arrived. One of the onlooking witnesses, Skinaway, complained that he didn't know whether to intervene or whether it had crossed the danger point, like the, this man was at risk of dying, because he knew that if he intervened, he would also become a target. Skinaway's complaint against Chauvin, the complaint that was filed, and which is how we know about this is from this onlooking witness, his complaint was ignored by the department and resulted in no disciplinary action. In July 2019, Chauvin was called to a home of an elderly woman who said her son was threatening to start a fire. Chauvin pulled his gun on the man. Then, after his hands were raised, Chauvin kicked the man in the stomach. So the man raises his hands and then Chauvin kicks him, threw him to the ground, and placed a knee on the man's neck until he lost consciousness. These were just a few of the complaints. There were others yeah. that I'm not going to go through. Gee. Only 0.35% of official officer complaints result in officers facing discipline. Why is
2: that, Garen? Because
0: who is it that the complaints go to and who decides whether to take action is other officers. And there's just a code and it's like a fraternity. There's police officers are reticent to impose accountability on other police officers because there's just a fraternal atmosphere to the police. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah. In a lot of arenas of life, we have this idea that with great power comes great accountability and responsibility. And good people.
2: Like you mean like we... I think we, we have the idea that... We assume that anybody who has like a pretty good job, like a justice job, or even like every nurse or every judge, every cop, every doctor... Like these respectful jobs that we just think most of them are good people, mm-hmm. or really we think all of them are good people. Yeah, not even most of them.
0: Yeah, but with most facets of life, if there are if there's a bad doctor, there's accountability there because if he malpractices, he'll get sued and his malpractice insurance will go up and he'll stop making money. And there's systems of accountability in most careers and professions, but. There has been a political unwillingness to impose accountability on policing. And there is also, I think, police unions block measures that would bring accountability. And then there's that kind of internal unwillingness to change and grow. There are tons of good police officers, but you can't blame bad policing on bad apples if you are allowing those bad apples to continue and to remain in the orchard. And that is exactly what's happening here. So this is not to say that I think most people go into policing, most officers who go into policing do so with noble and good intentions. And there are many who maintain those noble intentions. But as long as the system is unable to impose accountability and to take complaints seriously and to protect constitutional rights of the last, the least, the last, the victims, I think it's a major problem. And there needs to be change. There needs to be accountability, not because police are bad, but because any kind of power should come with accountability.
2: Yeah, I guess I didn't didn't realize that Chauvin had done that multiple times before. Like a knee on a neck until they're unconscious. That's and then nothing was done about that. Mm-hmm. Just to be clear. There was no And these are just the complaints. These aren't That's crazy. Him just filing reports when he used it. Like that's crazy. I like I think in my head, what probably most of our listeners are thinking are like If that happened to one of my kids, I would like bring the government down. I would, I would just find a way. I don't know. Maybe, Mm -hmm. maybe I wouldn't, but I don't know. I would like to think that like, oh, I'm getting a lawyer and this, something's happening. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, there's a part of me that wants like, even now I'm like just furious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The tragedy is, I mean,
0: and this is the whole thing. It probably wouldn't happen to one of your kids. It would happen to the kids of people who Chauvin knows don't have the resources to afford a lawyer to file legislation. Yeah. To people who have a criminal record, probably in their own background, so they're not going to be believed by the courts. It could be easy to dismiss. Yeah. It happens in communities that don't have the resources to push legislation and are not believed by the news and media when they say that these things happen. So getting back to George Floyd, Floyd was released from his incarceration for the five years for pleading guilty to the crime that he was kind of an accessory to, but didn't directly commit. He was released in 2013. And in Texas, the state government has a blanket ban on hiring most felons. Also, they are denied food stamps. There are a lot of trades that are no longer open to you if you have a criminal record. Public housing is not available for those who have had a felony conviction in the last 25 years. So there's all these factors that make it nearly impossible for many ex-felons to get back on track, to be rehabilitated, and to really plug back into society. So in the months that followed the birth of his daughter, Gianna, Floyd began to really reconnect with his faith. He got off drugs again. He really just tried in this kind of sustained way to turn his life around, and he began to read the Bible and pray. He had read a copy of The Purpose Driven Life while he was in prison, and he had been deeply moved by what he read. He started to include the phrase Big Floyd for God on his Instagram handle, and he began to see it as a ministry to try to encourage other young men, young black men to turn away from violence and drugs. So he wanted to use his story to make a difference and to help others. Floyd's pastor at the time, Pastor Riles, recommended that he should try to get away from the third ward. The temptation of drugs was ever-present. Floyd's old connections to the drug culture in the third ward was ever-present and was always a temptation. So Pastor Riles wanted him to get away to a safe distance, somewhere where he could rebuild his life without those temptations. The thing with drugs, and for those who are formerly addicted to drugs, is the drugs are just kind of sitting there waiting for the worst day of your year like maybe they're not a continual temptation every day. Maybe they are, but you have to think not just, is this something I'm going to give into now, but at like me at my lowest of this year of when I'm facing all the tragedies, all the bad luck, all the frustrations of just a bunch of things coming together at once. Is that going to be a temptation that I'll turn to? And for Floyd, I think he recognized that, yeah, I can... Stay off the drugs for now, but I need to get out. I need to get into a place where I have mental space to try to build my life together without just knowing uh, that pick up a phone, knowing a number I can call to get drugs. And so he was hesitant because it meant leaving everyone and everything he knew. But he eventually agreed to take the generous gift of a one way bus ride up to Minneapolis in hopes of rebuilding his life there. And that is both beautiful and tragic at the same time, knowing what waited for him in Minneapolis. Floyd in Minneapolis really did do some good work to get his life together. He went to rehab. He got off drugs. He got a job with benefits that allowed him to get needed medical help for some old sports injuries. He began to open up with counselors about his grief at having missed his opportunity to play professional sports after having been so close for so long. He found a house to rent in a nice neighborhood and shared it with a friend from rehab, an older man named Big E. But then tragedy struck again because Big E relapsed and used drugs and died of an overdose. So Floyd walked home, went into his home and found Big E, who was dead from these pills, trying to numb the scars of his own past. And that really kind of sent Floyd tumbling. He after that, started to use drugs again and fell back into a pattern of drug use again, which is so sad. And so that kind of leads us to Memorial Day, when the part of Floyd's story that we are most familiar with happened. And we're not going to, I guess, overly go into it just because there's a lot of familiarity. And also it's just emotionally so tragic. we don't want to re-traumatize through the story. But do you want to talk through some details that maybe flesh out the story a little bit for, for people who haven't understood as much exactly what went down.
1: Memorial Day 2020.
0: Yep. So the cops were called after Floyd attempted to use a counterfeit $20 bill. There's no evidence that George Floyd knew that the $20 bill that he passed was fake, and he had recently paid his rent in $20 bills, none of which were found to be fake. He used a lot of $20 bills, I mean, if you're paying rent in 20s a lot of $20 bills that he came across. This one happened to be fake, but if you were making fake $20 bills, I would think you would include some in your rent payment. So likely it was just kind of bad luck of he'd been given a fake 20 and passed it on. Floyd was initially confused why the cops were at his car. And so he was slow to respond to them, which led them to to pull him out of the car and walk him to a police cruiser. But as we've hinted at, George Floyd had claustrophobia and suddenly was kind of taken over by an intense fear of being put back in jail. He didn't really know what was happening, but just was traumatized. I mean, I think black people in America in general experience the police sirens or the a police officer suddenly knocking on the glass of your car in a way that's... I mean, I think for me, that would be a little bit terrifying, but, but just after so many incidents of just unprovoked police violence against black people i think there's a trauma that comes in and floyd had a trauma response a fight or fight response and he in that moment wasn't in his right mind was, was going to do anything he could to prevent from being put in this police car in this confined space and he was confused why it was even happening and so he fought back he tried to not be put in the car i mean he didn't fight he resisted being put into the car and one onlooker, an elderly black man, gave him friendly advice, just kind of shouting out, you can't win. And George Floyd responded, I don't want to try to win. I'm scared as F, man. When the officers pulled Floyd from the squad car and threw him onto the pavement, Floyd initially thanked them. And, and I mean, this shows his mental state. He thanked them for throwing him on the ground because he was hopeful that they had heard him shouting that he had claustrophobia and that they were throwing him on the ground instead to kind of make provision for his claustrophobia but they didn't hear him or didn't have pity on him and i mean we know from the story how it ended george floyd said at least 27 times that he could not breathe one of the last dreams that george floyd had leading up to the time that he was killed was he hoped to make a restaurant that served meals inspired by prison commissary food. He dreamed that the restaurant would hire only ex-felons and that the interview process would only include one question, have you served time in a penitentiary? George, he knew how difficult it was to get a job out of prison, and he also knew how much prisoners and and ex-felons needed a safe space to process their attempts to reintegrate into society, a place that wouldn't judge them, a place where they could get mental health help. So George dreamed that the restaurant would offer mental health services and be a therapeutic place for ex-felons to get their lives together. And that dream, along with all of his other dreams, were cut short. In the initial press release after George Floyd was killed, it said on Monday evening, shortly after 8 p.m., officers from the Minneapolis Police Department responded to the 3700 block of Chicago Avenue South on a report of a forgery in progress. Officers were advised that the suspect was sitting on top of a blue car and appeared to be under the influence. Two officers arrived and located the suspect, a male believed to be in his 40s, in his car. It continued, he was ordered to step from his car. After he got out, he physically resisted officers. Officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center by ambulance where he died a short time later. That is the full description. Which, I mean, obviously, knowing what happened is just laughably falls short or tragically and laughably at the same time falls short of describing like the reality of what happened. Officers were able to get him in handcuffs and called an ambulance. Nothing about knees on neck. Mm -hmm. Nothing about him pleading 27 times that he couldn't breathe while they slowly suffocated him.
1: Nothing about saying I'm claustrophobic. Nothing about crying out for his mama. Mm -hmm. Which, I
0: mean, this goes back to that thing we were talking about, the lack of police accountability and the willingness of the systems of accountability or the systems that should hold accountability for policing are non-functional.
1: Well, in The fallout where George Floyd would continue to be criminalized in the court of public opinion based on him, like falsely criminalized. George Floyd has a police record and the authors of his autobiography, they go into detail about that. Right. And you've talked about that in this episode. But there was an accusation that he raped a woman or attempted to sexually assault a woman at gunpoint. And he, th- there was a picture floating around of her. And she herself got on social media and was like, absolutely not. And what occurred with her happened in Spain. But just the scrambling to falsely criminalize this man, this human being, who, yes, has a criminal record. But under no circumstances should what happened to him have happened. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, a police officer with a clear record of abuse of power and brutality and excessive force is still being heralded as a hero amongst many when we visibly, with our own eyes, see him. Lynch a man with his knee on his neck, and somehow, because he wears a badge, he is worthy of dignity. When he has a criminal record, well, he should have a criminal record, but he has a record of abuse, and now he does. It's just, it's insane. And also, George Floyd had a daughter. George Floyd was trying to turn his life around. And I don't even know what to say. Hmm. I don't even know what else to say.
2: Hmm.
0: Floyd regularly, almost constantly told people, I love you. I love you, bro. So much so that his friends had no doubt. Many of his friends, when they were interviewed by the biographers, had no doubt what George's last words to them were, which is a sweet thing. Around the world, oppressed groups were connecting with Floyd's death, and they were connecting it to their own struggles for justice. George Floyd's face was painted in Syria, Pakistan, and the West Bank. Activists in Europe called on their governments to address the legacies of colonialism, leading Germany to agree to return looted treasures to Nigeria. In Britain, crowds pulled down a bronze sculpture of a slave trader named Edward Colston in Bristol, and activists called into question the disproportionate use of stop and search powers on black residents. More than 10,000 people showed up at a Sydney town hall in Australia to draw parallels to the oppressions of the aborigines. There have been more than 400 aboriginal deaths in police custody since 1991, none of which have resulted in charges against officers. George shined a spotlight on injustice. He struggled until the end to live, and he ultimately couldn't struggle any longer. But in his death, he shined a spotlight on the many injustices that led him to his ultimate death. The story of George Floyd's murder is not just the story of one bad apple, one-off terrible police officer and a moment of injustice or cruelty. George Floyd's murder is an indictment of the whole system that led to that moment. It's an indictment of the bankers and local governments who conspired to steal the land of George Floyd's great-grandfather, Hillary Thomas Stewart. The landowners who entrapped and abused Laura Ann Jones, George Floyd's grandmother, in a system of inescapable poverty by burning down the barn that we mentioned two episodes ago. Floyd's story is an indictment of the Bartlett State Jail in the America where young black men in the third ward are told that their only ticket out of poverty is through professional sports, but then they're not given the resources to have a true education or a path forward. His story exposes the cruelty of officers like Goins and the justice system that forces black men to plead guilty to crimes that they didn't commit because they can't afford a defense attorney and don't want to take the risk of taking it to trial without one. His story condemns the system that fails to consider the terrified trauma-induced claustrophobia brought on by the harsh treatment of the system itself. Floyd's story exposes the rampant failure of accountability at the Minneapolis Police Department and the police culture that is slow to challenge criminal injustice perpetrated by the ranks of police officers themselves. The story convicts a system where a poor boy from the third ward takes on the name Boy as a way to cope with the irony of his lack of opportunity in life. And it exposes a system where a man like Big E can get plenty of help being incarcerated for drug possession, but little help finding freedom from those drugs. The whole of George Floyd's life was a system, and it was a system that was designed to send him down a path that was robbed and devoid of hope, of love, of opportunity, of dignity. Uh, and so, we—it's right to—it's right that Derek Chauvin is now in prison for killing him. And it's right and good that an outcry for justice came from what happened. But also, we need to dig a lot deeper than just to say, like, oh, this is tragic, what Chauvin did.
1: Well, and it's important to note that, as I said in the previous episode, I said, I am George Floyd, and George Floyd is me. He was born a year after I was, and I see the parallels of our lives. And. The fact that some oppressed people or many oppressed people are able to escape the system either by playing the game or for whatever reason, it does not eliminate the need to annihilate, destroy, revise, change the system because it is not defined by the success of a few or many, but it's defined by how many people are affected by that system. When we look at the statistics, when we look at the numbers of criminalization, when we look at the stereotypes, the stigmas, we look at the numbers of drug abuse, food deserts, poverty, what enslavement did, how black wealth and the promise of generational wealth was squelched during the time of Tulsa and the various riots the various displacements of black people stealing their land tricking them out of their land and out of opportunity the sharecropping system all of these systems all of these things that had a huge impact on the bloodline of George Floyd when we look at those things It's not just a notion, it's not just a historical point or data, these things impact people's lives. And for everything that George Floyd went through, I can point to something directly, like something that I experienced the same in some way. We really need to evaluate systems. And even the way that George Floyd was criminalized, which happens so often, I talk about this in Black Requiem, about how prosecuting the victims and putting the dead on trial, because make no mistake, Derek Chauvin was not put on trial. George Floyd was. He was just annihilated in the media. While Derek Chauvin is just a police officer doing his job and police officers are not perfect and they make mistakes, should not lead to fatality. And when people are dying from mistakes, then we need to be taking a look at those mistakes and calling them what they are.
0: I mean, just the fact that Derek Chauvin had done all these very similar things beforehand and I didn't know, I didn't hear about any of those. Right. It shows the sense in which all these details and evidence from Floyd's history was brought into the public conversation and not some of to, which was a lie and yeah, some which was just fic- fictional but not the same for Chauvin.
2: Yeah, I mean it's like a it, we really believe in that system that it we almost can't imagine there being a bad cop. Absolutely, you know. Without some excuse. It's like oh why would the system allow a bad cop? You know, it's like we're just assuming they're all good. Mhm. So we don't even question it. But that's crazy that he literally like had a record. I mean, I guess the big difference on this one was like someone filmed it.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I mean, let's just revisit that. There was all these complaints filed, no action taken. Yeah. So that's not just an indictment of Chauvin. That's an indictment. The system decided not to take any action. It didn't even write them up and say, stop doing this.
1: And had there not been film, had there not, had it not been recorded, there would be no justice. Mm -hmm. What has happened? Thank God for social media and thank God for phone video. I feel like God has given us black people and marginalized people justice by being able to be our own news source because the media has shown itself to be unreliable in the cases of African-Americans. I remember in the 80s and the 70s, like growing up where newscasters would be so quick to say a black man was such and such and such. A black man, you would hear that so much in the news, that a black man or a black woman, sometimes under, sometimes minors, but they would still be called a black man or a black woman. But you would never hear that about white people. It would always be a black man. And that never went away because look at, look, if you just Google the news articles and everything that came out, when George Floyd immediately died, like when, right after he died in the aftermath. But then here we are having to be our own news source, having to be our own investigators, having to be, yes, we protested. Yes, we ran to this, took it to the streets. And they make an issue about things being burnt down. And human beings matter more than burnt buildings. And I'm not advocating any level of violence. But just the way in which society will figure out ways to point the finger in any direction other than the injustice inflicted on a black body, it's just insane. And again, we've had to become our own news source. We've had to become our own court system, our own judge and jury. And it's because we have cried out and Fellow white sisters and brothers and other people, other countries, we have to shame America into doing what's right with its black and brown and indigenous and citizens of color.